It's at this time that I'd like to dismiss the kindergarten through second grade out the back door. You are dismissed. <laughs> this, is a, uh, this is a very famous passage uh, that we are studying here this morning. Uh, by the way, if you are curious, I'm not the pastor of the church. If you're new here, my name is David, and um, I am the pastor of education and uh, youth. And so I usually busy myself upstairs with the, um, the um, Sunday school hour with all the things. So I haven't really been involved in the service. And I was counted a privilege to be able to come and, and preach from time to time and just be a part of the service as much as I can. So I'm real happy to be here. Well, this passage in Genesis 22 is famous. It's yeah, a lot of scholars think that this is a high point of ancient uh, narrative. Uh, surely, as you read it, uh, you would agree with me. It's infuriating. It's absorbing. It's, it's riveting. It's deeply meaningful. It's not only deeply meaningful to Abraham. It's not only deeply meaningful for the people that heard this in the wilderness, the Israelites who were in the wilderness, uh, where Moses was presenting the story to them as a reminder before they went into Canaan, the promised land. No, this was also deeply meaningful for you and for me today. And the question before the house is, what is the meaning of this passage? What can we get out of this passage? And so as we have that question in our minds, we can approach the text. We immediately see that it's a test. I remember getting tests in school. You do too, right? It, it's the kind of thing that you study for. You listen to the lectures. You read the textbook. You study the night before. Then you take your test. And then you receive a grade. Now, what is the purpose of that test? And as you think that through, you'll realize that it's not really for the benefit of the teacher, even though the teacher does receive your test and understand how much you know, the teacher merely reports to the world, mainly your parents, what you know or whether or not you uh, got an A or a B or a C or a D or an F. In any case, the world will now know whether you have what it takes to pass this test. And so as we look at Abraham's test, it isn't just for Abraham. It's also for us to look and see what the real meaning, what the text is really trying to point us to. And what is that nugget of truth? What is, what is Abraham intended to walk away with? And over and over and over in this text, we hear these words, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide, the Lord will provide. And so that is the meaning, that is really the core, that is the focus of Genesis 22, the first 14 verses, that God, in fact, will provide. And I want to look at two parts of this this morning. First, God will. Second, provide. So first, just look at the words God will. When God appeared, when God came down in the form of a messenger and said, take your son here and go to the mountain, I will show you. He didn't really tell him exactly where that was. He kept Moses or he kept uh, Abraham in suspense. The, the idea of God will provide is a future reality promised today. But unclear. You can't really see every single step involved. If we go back to Genesis 12, you, you remember the initial words of God to Abraham. And it is, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you later, not now. I'm going to show it to you later, not now. He keeps Abraham in suspense. and He takes one step at a time. In other words, God shows him the goal, the end result, and the first step, nothing in between. And requires us to move with, with that. 
And, and why? Why is that? Why does God, why does God keep Abraham in suspense? And I think it forces Abraham to do something. It forces you and I to do something when God tells us, you're going to make it. You're going to be in heaven, right? In that place of glory. You'll be with me, right? But here, take this first step. And the rest of it, I'll just, I'll leave to later. You just have to trust me. And in that moment, it forces us to focus our attention on God. See, if God gave us the end result, And then every step of the strategy, we would own every step of the strategy. That's exactly what we do in our lives, isn't it? When we have set our minds to do something, we get the strategy clearly in our minds and own every part of it. And then along the way, as we make progress towards our goal, we end up taking credit for this. And that is exactly what God is trying to avoid here. He's trying to say, follow me this one step, and then I'll tell you the next step. Keep looking at me. Keep looking at me. Keep looking at me every step of the way. I am the the, the logic. I am the step. I am the strategy. I am everything. I'm the goal, too, by the way. Everything is all about me, so just keep looking at me. We see this in other places in Scripture. It's amazing. Look at this. In Exodus 16, listen to the words that, that, that God says. He says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. This is manna for the people of God who are hungry. And the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day. Do you hear that? And later he adds, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Do you remember what happened when some of the Israelites disobeyed that command? Later it says in the same chapter, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it and each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. This reminds me of what Jesus told us when he when he told us how to pray he said give us this day our daily bread don't give us the amount of bread for a year and store it in my storage closet because then the focus comes off of god and onto your stash so this is not just a weird detail. God says, I will provide. Go to the mountain, I will show you. Go to the land, I will show you. Keep looking at me, keep looking at me, keep looking at me. And the question I'm asking myself as I, as I listen to these words of Genesis 22 is, where do, where do I find rest? Where do I find my peace in life? And I have to answer the question this way. I have to say, when everything makes sense... And I can see the step-by-step all the way to the goal. I can see it clearly. And I sleep well at night. But when the way is cloudy, when I'm in a fog about what step is coming after this one, I, I can't rest. And God says, no, look at me and trust me. I recently took the middle school kids to West Virginia. This is about the eighth time... The eighth time that I went to West Virginia with the middle school kids. 
And uh, I remember, I mean, the first time I went to West Virginia on this retreat called the Next Level Retreat, you know, we would go up to the mountains and I was a, I was a nervous mess because every detail was new. You know, and I, I couldn't see the potential dangers necessarily, you know, and I didn't know how much it was going to cost in the end if I was going to be, you know, short of money. And, and, and I couldn't see, you know, exactly the directions about how to get to the next place. And I was always looking at maps and things. I was, I was a nervous mess. But this last summer, I went to the same place I've been eight times, at least. <laughs> West Virginia. And I mean, I was in cruise control. I didn't worry a bit. The first trip every night, the first time six, eight years ago, I, I would sit down at night. And I'd say, God, thank you for getting me through this day. Please help me get through tomorrow with no one you know, killed or hurt or, or lost. Please. But the, this last summer, the funny thing about last summer is I never did that once. You know, I never, I never prayed that prayer at night. When I went to bed at night, I just slept like a baby. I was like, yeah, I got this, God. Here's the words. I got this. I was... I was independent. I was on my own. You know, I saw very clearly the strategy to get to the goal. And, and when you and I live that way and we say to God, I got this. You don't need to pray anymore, do you? You don't need to depend on the Lord, do you? You don't seek him in his word, do you? Well, God says to Abraham, don't live like that. Look at me for every step. Well, that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 22. You don't got this, Abraham. How many times, Abraham, have you tried to take control of of exacting or making my promises a reality? Think about that. When God promised Abraham's name would become great, Abraham did everything in his power to secure that, didn't he? When a famine came... They had to go to Egypt. And what did Abraham do? He feared Pharaoh, for he thought Pharaoh would take his his wife, Sarah, as his wife and maybe kill Pharaoh. So out of fear, remember this sermon just a couple weeks ago? Remember this idea of he took control. He's like, I got this. I've got a plan, right, to save me, really, to to make my name great. So I've I've got a plan. And God just sits back and laughs and says, you don't got this. What are you talking about? You don't think I can protect you? And your wife, Sarah, against Pharaoh. And then when God promised a land or a nation of his own and Lot threatened to take it away. Remember, Lot was living right next to Abraham and they're, they're, they were kind of fighting over wells and, and, and possessions and flocks and herds and things like that. And they were fighting. Abraham said, I got this. Lot, you go over there. I'm going to go over here. Let's separate. Let's just let's keep the peace. I got I to gotta keep my land over here and you, you over there. And then what happened? Lot got in trouble twice. Abraham had to rescue him twice. No, Abraham, you don't, you don't have this. When God promised offspring as numerous as the stars and the sand, and Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a biological child of their own, what did Abraham do? He stood up like I did at West Virginia, and I said, I got this. I, I can see clearly what to do. And, and Sarah and Abraham decided that Hagar would be a good idea. And, and so Abraham lay with Hagar and had a child, Ishmael. I got this. I got control. Let's do this. And God says, no, you don't got this. And you see the mess of sending Hagar and Ishmael away and creating an enemy of them. And then Isaac appears. You don't think God says that I can produce a child or open a womb? You don't think I have the power to do that? Look, 
Trust me, I will provide. I'm not going to tell you every step of the, of the process. Just look at me. Look at me at every step. That's what is going on here in Genesis 22. And, and Abraham is watching his, his trust in God grow with every minute. And so this, this is a, definitely a test of faith where God puts everything on the line. Isaac represents everything, his future. He's the miracle child, the only child that is going to be able to produce the promises of God. And God says, sacrifice him, put him up on the offering, offer an altar and offer him to me. Give him up. Everything that I say, this is my worth, this is my significance, this is my joy. Everything's going to be taken away little bit by little bit by little bit, just like it did for Abraham. And I'm left at the end of the day to look at God and say, you're all I have. You're the beginning. You're the end. And God, you are everything in between. Everything in between. So look, look to God. So that is the idea behind the words God will. It's a future promise going to be realized later. So keep watching God. But then this idea of provision comes in. Jehovah Jireh. The God says God will provide. The Lord will provide over and over again. And, and we, we ask what is being provided here in this passage? You know, it's important to see that God is not asking Abraham to murder his son. The word murder doesn't fit into Genesis 22. And the reason I say that is because the words in Genesis are different. Like, read these words with me in Genesis 22. It says, offer him there. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham builds an altar. So this is very different than just murdering his son in the middle of the night. Right? This is very different than that. Some say here that when I read uh, various commentaries trying to grapple for meaning in this in this text, and some say that the, the point of this text is that God wants to make himself different from the other gods in the land. And he wants to present himself to Abraham as different than, say, Molech, where people sacrifice their children to show their commitment to the god Molech. And God wants to stand up and say, no, I'm different than Molech. Don't. Sacrifice your children to me. I'm not that cruel. I'm not a meanie. I'm not bad. Keep your children and be happy and serve me and love me. That's the point of this passage when God intervenes and says, don't lay a hand on Isaac. God is different. But we don't see a hatred of child sacrifice alone. Whenever you look at a passage in the Old Testament where God prohibits child sacrifice, you'll see something else with it. And this something else is key to understanding God's hatred of child sacrifice. Let me read from Leviticus 18:21. It says, "You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord." Lots of verses, 20 or so verses. I found that prohibit burning children always refer to offering these children to a certain deity like the pagan nations around you. Okay, so don't offer your children to the deity over there. Offer them to me. Now, that's a that's a new idea. God is that way. Does God demand our children as 
Sacrifices as offering? Really? Well, when we read through the Exodus, the people of God hearing Genesis 22 read to them in the, in the, in the wilderness before they take the promised land, they would have remembered very clearly what happened because it was told so often in every Passover, it was, it was told that God killed the firstborn of every Egyptian household. And here's the question I pose. When God came to Egypt to kill the firstborn child who was in danger, who was in danger of being killed? Who was the destroyer, the word used, the destroyer going to kill? Every firstborn child. And if you want out, Israelites, here's your out. Instead of killing your firstborn child, take a lamb and slaughter the lamb. Take the blood and paint it on the doorposts. And then he will pass over you. But if you don't do that, you're in danger. So every Israelite heard the danger and said, hey, there's impending danger tonight. The destroyer is coming for our children God is coming for our children. And the only way out is to kill a lamb. Either you sacrifice a lamb or God will sacrifice your firstborn. Then God continues to demand the firstborn after that. God continues to demand from Israel their firstborn child. He says in Exodus 22, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest. That's the first fruits from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons also you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with his mother. And on the eighth day, you shall give it to me. Exodus 34, the first offspring from every womb belongs to me. Human, livestock, cattle, sheep, the firstborn belongs to me. Even today, there's a uh, mitvah in in Judaism called Pidyon Haben. I think I may have pronounced that right whereby a Jewish firstborn son is redeemed back from God by the use of silver coins. So they offer the firstborn to God, and then they're able to redeem their son back to their possession from the Lord. Whether it's the first fruits, the firstborn of the herds, or every male firstborn, God demanded it for himself. So when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn, Abraham is not in total shock. This sounds like God is asking me for my firstborn. There's a huge conflict with Isaac being the promised child who will become the seed for all these future generations. And now he's going to die on the altar. Yes, that's a conflict. But the fact that God demanded my firstborn son is not a complete shock to Abraham. It's more than just giving a tithe, though. Obviously, Isaac represents the future and this, this is where we get to the core of what's going on here. And the reason I know that, and the reason you know that, is because of these 14 verses that we just read. The pace is pretty fast. Skipping days, skipping hours. And then all of a sudden at this one location, the three days journey to the mountain where Isaac will be sacrificed, the three days journey, things slow down. And, and the tempo is reduced greatly. And so this is the core. Let's think about those three days for just a moment where Abraham and Isaac walked. Isaac looks up to his father and Abraham looks down at his boy. Father, here I am. Their eyes meet. What must Abraham be thinking and feeling right there in that moment? A boy that Abraham loved so dearly. And his son asked, where's the lamb? I see the fire. I see the knife. Where's the lamb? Where's the, where's the offering, dad? 
the story slows down. Vivid detail. We're meant to ponder this. Abraham thinks, I'm giving up my entire future right here. (laughs) This is it. I guess the promises of God are void. I guess God thought I wasn't worthy. Maybe that's a thought that occurred to Abraham. But surely every parent in this room can imagine what a father would fear, would feel as he faces this situation. Killing my son with a knife, letting the blood drain out from his body, dismembering the body and laying it on the altar, and then setting the members on fire. I can't imagine doing that to my, any of my children. The whole, I mean, the words that I, I came up with, this ghastly, disgusting, abusive, dreadful, hideous. This is what he's thinking about for three days. You know, we try to get away from this, don't we, in America? We hide wires in the walls and plumbing in the floor, you know. So all we can see is a button on the wall that turns on the light. We, all the intricate inner workings that we call ugly, we hide them, especially at the dinner table. What did it take to create the meal set before you on the dinner table? We hide all those awful, hideous, disgusting facts of butchery. Uh, the closest we get is funny in um, Chick-fil-A. The cow's encouraging us to eat more chicken. You know, they're, they're saying, we don't want to be slaughtered, so please eat more chicken. I wonder if kids really get what's going on there. I wonder if they really understand that. The cows don't want to die. Do you understand that, kids? These cows do not want to die, so don't go to McDonald's where they kill cows. But, go, you know, this is the idea. But we want to get away from that. I love uh, Thanksgiving for this reason. It's so funny when uh, we <laughs> had the turkey carcass. You know, the kids gather. It's a lot of fun. You know, we open the turkey. You know, we pull things out, and we have this big, long, curved thing. We're like, what is this? And I say, oh, that's the turkey neck. Ew! Right? It's this huge, like, gross experience for the kids. We put the turkey neck down and they're backing away from it because they think it might crawl towards them or something. And then we pull out this little sack, you know, and you rip it open. What's that? Oh, those are organs from the turkey. And my daughter notices something's leaking from this turkey carcass and she says, Turkey blood! Now, do you know what dad, me, I did? In that moment, I was a good parent because I wanted to soften it for my child. And I literally said this before I had a chance to think it through. No, honey, that's not turkey blood. That's turkey juice. That's what we do, isn't it? We try to hide the awful, deathly nature of butchering, keeping it far away from the life-giving nature of eating. We keep the deathly nature of butchering far away from the life-giving nature of eating. (laughs) We do this in our Christian church experience, too, here this morning. You know, we usher people in from a well-organized parking lot with smiling faces, not criticizing any of this, by the way, but it's just what we do, right? We welcome people in with smiling faces, beautiful bulletins printed so nicely, and people whisking or screaming kids away to a nice, safe, warm, dry place called the nursery where we can trust those nice people over there. And then we're seated on safe, cushy seats in 72 degrees with a nice, cozy, friendly, warm cup of coffee. And we sing, pray, and listen. This is worship for the average American on Sunday morning. Position that worship experience next to the worship experience of Israel when they came to worship God with the temple. You remember this? The temple had 
between where the Israelites were and the, the place where God was, the Holy of Holies, there's this, this huge altar. And on that altar uh, stood, uh, was where they, they sacrificed many, many animals. The blood of the sacrifices, they were instructed in, in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 4 to take the blood of the sacrifices and throw it at the base on purpose. Not, you know, put it in a bucket and then quietly, you know, drain the bucket somewhere but take the blood and make it conspicuously obvious that blood is being you know used here and can you imagine animal after animal after animal after animal it's all over the priest's clothes it's all over the base there's flies everywhere it stinks it's rancid ghastly disgusting horrible awful and then you have to pass through by that to get into where god is as a reminder of sin and the sacrifice needed for sin to make us holy. What if we did that in our lobby today? We had a burnt offering right there in the lobby. And everybody that came into church would just pass something like that. And here you see one of the staff members standing there. Hey, how you doing? Just sprinkling blood on this awful thing. And people are like, this is disgusting. And there's fire burning. It's just terrible. It's an awful reminder of our sin and the sacrifice needed to make us holy to be in God's presence. You see how far we've come away when we've, we've moved off the deathly nature of butchering and sacrifice away from the life-giving experience of worship. We forget. We forget so often. So, to see God's blessing. This is the point. I think this is where we're going. God will provide a blessing. Here's the, here's, here's the way you're going to get that blessing, Abraham. Do you see the blessing clearly? I bet you you don't. I bet you when I first told you, Abraham, about the blessing, you thought land, a great name, and lots of kids. That's what you thought, right? That's not the blessing. Let me describe the blessing. Walk up a mountain with your son and sacrifice him there. In order to see the blessing, you have to go there. There is no Christian blessing that sits apart from a mountain like that. For three whole days, Abraham ponders this one thing. I must butcher my baby boy, my child, cherished as he is. And with the knife raised, he looks into the eyes of his son Isaac, and he begins to plunge down, 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 until he hears the blessing and hear the words, Afresh, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. You have not withheld your son, your only son, who you love from me. Think of these verses in the New Testament. A voice from heaven said at the baptism of Jesus, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then this one. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. These are the angels to the shepherd. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What is the good news? What is the Savior? See, if we, 
remove the blessing far away from this sacrifice that's so ugly. We forget. It's not, you, you might be hearing that the point of this passage is to help you remember. Not take things for granted, like Veterans Day. Don't take your freedom for granted. Veterans, many of them died for your freedom. Don't forget. But it's more than that. I think the message is more than that. It's not just taking it for granted. This sacrifice, this ugly thing, is the foundation of our joy. It's the foundation of our life. For we cannot have it without it. We don't have to lose our future. We won't have to kill our firstborn. We won't have to be killed ourselves. For God will provide. Let's pray.